847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. On this episode, I have a guest. I'm talking with Dan Goldwasser, who is a soundtrack album producer, uh, former editor of Soundtrack.net, uh, currently runs ScoringSessions.com, and also does a lot of photojournalism uh, at various scoring sessions here in L.A. So, uh, welcome, Dan. Hey, how's it going, Brian? <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. No, no, I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, was there anything I missed as far as your... Uh, probably the only other thing you missed um, is with Warm Butter Design, I do album artwork for many of the albums I produce and albums I don't produce as well. Um, and web design for most of my clients are composers in, in that realm right. as well. So I kind of have my claws in the film music industry in one way or another, right. I, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> and you have for a long time. Yeah, I uh, actually was doing web design around the same time I was sort of building up Soundtrack.net, so kind of in the uh, 1998 era. That, has, that was a while ago. That was almost 20 years ago, yes. Wow. So wow. I've known you too long. As yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, full full disclosure, I actually wrote reviews for Soundtrack.net back in the day. Um, so. And a good job at them, too. Oh, thank you very much. So, And I think you can actually still Google them. I think They, they are still up. online. They the still website online. is still there. Um, yeah. Sean Salisbury, who was a co-creator of Box Office Mojo, is currently running the website. It's a good resource for information about upcoming titles and existing what titles exist. Uh, it just doesn't have the editorial aspects that it had when uh, when we were there. So. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, you know, Things change. Easy come, easy go. <laughs> but now you're responsible for some great uh, soundtrack titles from uh, record labels like La La Land uh, Records, um, and so I wanted to talk to you today, <clears throat> basically about you know some of your experiences with making those albums, you know good things, bad things, um, and just uh, for your process as far as like starting out um, when there's a project that's going to come out. Right. Like, I kind of wanted to sort of hear like, okay, so it gets, you know, it gets decided we're going to do this project. Like, where do you start? Um, right. And so we, we, we were trying to figure out like which what would be a good example. Um, so I think from these, uh, do we want it, you know, as... I mean, I, I guess a good one to start with would be Dave Grusin's score to The Firm. So and this is not necessarily how any given project will go because there's so many different factors to keep in mind with any project in terms of who owns the music. If it's an expansion on a previously released album, you may have another record label you have to deal with. 
Um, or if it's just straight up, hey, this score has never been released, and you're just working with the studio. Um, is the composer alive? Are they dead? Uh, is there a state involved if they are dead? There's a lot of things that could lead this journey to either become a very simple path to follow or one of those insanely crooked, you know, wandering, lost in the desert for 40 years kind of projects. Um, so the firm, as, as a good example, um, this was the, I believe, second Tom Cruise project that I worked on, the first one being Days of Thunder. I could be oh, wrong. Right. I know okay. there was a Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in there somewhere, but I think this was before that. So in this case, uh, this came about because uh, I had been in Spain, actually, with Dave oh. Grusin. Um, oh, when wow. he went to the Vacationing? U- uh, yes. Uh, we, we tend to spend our summers uh, in, in Spain. No, he, he was uh, one of the featured guests at the Ubra Film Music Festival in, in Spain. Um, and during that time, he and I were chatting, and I had been doing a bunch of albums, you know, for a few years at that point with Lawland. And in fact, I had a panel in Spain to talk about the current upcoming Comic Con releases that Lawland was putting out that year. And I was mentioning, you know, hey, you know, the the firm is a great album, but it's you know, only got half score and half source music, and there's a lot of music not in you know not released that was in the film Mm -hmm. and he seemed to think like yeah that'd be kind of a cool thing to revisit at some point so flash forward you know a couple years and it gets to the point where i had the firm in the back of my head as hey this is something we can look into but because it was released on dave grusin's own record label which is now a owned subsidiary of universal music group oh that becomes a sub-license deal so kind of how you know braveheart was with Universal Music and Wyatt Earp was Warner Music, um, and there's also Sony Music who did, you know, for instance, uh, Titanic mm-hmm. most recently. You know, these are large entities that have a lot, a very large but willing corporate structure that we have to approach and be very sort of diligent about what projects we want to propose to them. And at that point, it doesn't matter whether or not Dave Brewson thinks it's a great idea. It could be... It, uh... it could help. Okay. Um, and I don't think it ever hurts to say the artist is interested and that might help facilitate approvals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is you're still dealing with a rather large music company um, and you're not the only one trying to do these types of projects. So they've got a lot on their plates and so you have to be very picky. I might think, hey, we got to do the firm, but then it turns out, well, we're also already working on, you know, uh, this is not the actual order of things, but it's like, oh, well, we're trying to get Braveheart out and it's like, we're trying to get these other things and so we have to prioritize which titles are going to be able to get through the system mm-hmm. um, and hopefully have them out in time for a, you know, a timely release. Um, so in the case of the firm, it was once it was established that hey, this is a Paramount film, and is Paramount cool with it, and they were, then we could go to Universal Music and say hey, we would like to look into this project as one of the many titles, um, and it you know we did the Warriors with Universal Music and Paramount as well. Uh, I think in two years earlier, or I'm maybe getting my dates a little off, but we'd done it before the firm, and in that case. You know, the, there's the the Warriors is a soundtrack that's still available. It's not like it's an out of print album. Okay. And you always have to have that in consideration when you're asking a record label that has an active product that's available for sale to have a competing product out on the market. 
Mm -hmm. um, it's easier if it's out of print or harder to find because then they're, this gives them an excuse of saying, yeah, we'll you know, reignite interest in the, in the property. And for licensing purposes and everything, it, everyone wins. But if you have something like the Warriors or even the Firm, you know, I don't think the Firm was out of print. So it's oh. it's always I, I could be wrong on that. I I just don't recall. It's been too long. But you have these situations where you have to be considering, is this available? And if it's something that's so widely available that everybody has, and it's in print, you're at it's a big ask yeah. to ask these companies to let you do a niche limited edition release but it might still technically compete with the product they have on the market even though they're kind of kind of different audiences so in the case of the firm once we did get the green light from universal music then we usually have to come up with a proposed track list uh, so everything's done on paper before we even see what assets exist in the vault oh so you're and coming up with the track list before you even get to the materials. We come up with a concept track list before we even know what material we have hmm. or what would even exist. And it's usually just based on the cue sheet for the film mm -hmm. and the album. So, oh, the album has these tracks. The cue sheet has these tracks and more tracks. So our concept album would be a combination thereof. But, of course, that's never how it goes, because once you finally get the actual material, you say, oh, wow, there are alternates, and there's unused material that aren't on the cue sheet because mm -hmm. it's not in the film. And right. so it's a sort of a journey of discovery. Right. Um, so in the case of The Firm, what was really nice about that was to sort of find that there was a lot of music that was in the film that people hadn't heard because it hadn't been released, but a lot of it... I think there's a lot of music that says not used in film and contains material not used in film. And if you look at the back tray, there are a lot of asterisks. So what happens is, and I say asterisks meaning the indicator of what was used and not in the film. Right. So, um, so in the case of The Firm, it turns out there was a lot of score that Grusin had written that just wasn't in the film. Hmm. And so it wasn't in the cue sheet. Oh, so wow. we didn't know that when we were, you know, putting our proposal together right so but the, it's a proposal it's a preliminary idea of what the album could be obviously it's going to change and yeah. you know and it did in this case so it became a two disc set um you know with the first disc being the complete score not as heard as in the film because mm -hmm. there's a lot of music not in the film mm -hmm. so it's just more about here's the score as gruesome intended the second disc has the album as originally released because there were different edits of things that we want to you know want to make it as complete as possible and that's always nice to have because the album is its own you know representation of music from the film and yeah it can't have unique edits and unique sort of arrangements yeah i mean optimally it's like if you know if money were no object and these <laughs> projects do cost a lot of money when you're dealing with transfers of you know analog tapes that then have to be you know cleaned up, you know, edited down, mastering, assemblies. I mean, there's a lot of work just to get an actual album out um, before you even go to the album mastering phase. And 
you know, if cost, if there was no limit to the cost of anything, I'd be like, yeah, let's put in everything. Let's put, you know, every additional piece of music we have, every alternate, every, you know, put it in a listening form that, you know, is enjoyable to, mm. to listen to. You can't, you don't want to have an album that's just, you know, 85 tracks on disc one and it's every <laughs> raw slate. Like it has to be produced. It has yeah. to be put together in a way that's pleasing to the ear. Yeah. Um, we can get into some of the problems with, some, you know, the approaches to different albums. How you approach an album can really make a difference, I think. Um, in any case, what I'm getting at, though, is like sometimes I want to have the ability... I feel like if I'm doing an expanded soundtrack, I would like to have the ability to sequence it and recreate the original album with whatever I release. So if I release a two-disc set of something, however it's sequenced and organized... I want to be able to say, if I wanted to recreate the album release mm -hmm. that came out 20, 30 years ago, I should be able to program the tracks on my new album and listen to that sequence. And even if it's a shorter... if it's a, So if you have an album edited version of something yeah. or versus the longer film version, I want both on that release. I, I think I've You can't always do it. Yeah. Sometimes it's a limitation of space because once you go above two discs, you know, a two disc you can get into a nice jewel case sized package the minute you go to three discs it's a clamshell package mm -hmm. it the manufacturing physical manufacturing costs increase significantly yeah it's not i mean physical discs like one disc is is pretty cheap i mean they're really cheap these days to make discs but once you go above a certain you know number of discs it's going to start really becoming more expensive and then your price point for selling goes up and then that you know, tends to you know sort right. of affect who's going to be buying the album. And, uh, and now th this is a bit of a tangent from from the the firm, but as as a something that made me people go, oh no, like so dead again, <laughs> could have easily been a three disc set, a three disc set. Huh. I'm pretty sure it's a one disc set. I think so. I need yeah. to double check, but it's it's we had so much material that was unused. It just wasn't in the film, and it didn't lend itself it, a lot of it was source music that patrick ha doyle had arranged oh for various sequences and i tried to include as much of it as i could squeeze in but the reality is you can't include everything as right. you know i wish i could uh, yeah making a three disc release of dead again doesn't... because no one's gonna buy a three disc set of dead again except right. for me and patrick <laughs> you know <laughs> There so, might be one or two fans. I'm, I'm sure there'd be, but that's not enough to justify the cost. Right. And that's the, it's not just a cost in that case of the physical manufacturing, it's the cost of the licensing, because you are paying, if it's a song, you know, yeah. there's the mechanical license and, you know, different things like that, that the publishing has to be paid, and, you know, the union has to be paid, and uh, there, there are a lot of costs beyond just the physical, is it one disc, two discs, or three discs? That is interesting. That yeah, I can so, imagine that's frustrating. Yeah, from what you see, the potential of a of an album release. Yeah, and and another uh, sort of frustrating aspect uh, with archival releases. You know, we're trying to do it. We're, we're releasing these things for posterity, and they are truly archival releases because you know we'll go into the vault, we'll get the material transferred, and we'll try and put out an album that is as close. If as possible to what was heard in the film with bonus materials and whatnot, but that also means being very careful about the order of the tracks. In in a, in a, in a perfect world, I I would see an album release and how John Williams sees album releases, which is to say they are not 
in film order. They are a completely different product from the film soundtrack. So when you listen to the soundtrack to The Last Jedi or The Force Awakens or The Post, none of which I've listened to except for Force Awakens, <laughs> it's not necessarily in film order. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he edits things around. If you especially look at John Williams' soundtracks from the early '80s, yeah, um, a great example is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, 1981. Yeah. I mean, it's a great example of anything. But true. Um, <laughs> in this particular case, it's not in film order. It he has concert suites, kind of you know the theme suites, if you will, like in the middle of it. It just kind of it it makes it an enjoyable listening experience. Yeah, that is not necessarily ref reflective of. Well, that's not how it was in the film. The, this this track came before that, or vice I, versa. Well, I've always felt like his his it's twofold. It's it's obviously at that time the limitation of the um, what the format was like as far as LPs and cassettes. If you only got forty minutes of space, that's all you're getting of Raiders. And two, I think Williams um, and some of the other composers that came from um, an earlier time, they're thinking of this record as like. Well, what are people going to buy that like he's not thinking of I'm approaching the soundtrack fan that wants every note he's like I'm approaching the general audience member who just saw that movie they might have one or two soundtracks they're going to go buy this one and they'll play it once or twice a year you know right. and it just is supposed to give you the sense of the movie but it's not slavishly representative of the entire movie from frame one to the last credit and that's I think that's it's like well I want it to be listenable like it's next to your album of the Beatles and the Stones or something. There's right. you know forty minutes of Raiders. Yeah, and 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 that's why uh, I bring up Raiders as an example because that's specifically the album I was keeping in the back of my mind when I was putting together Trevor Jones's soundtrack to Nathan Hayes, which is fantastic. Thank you. And the reason I had to keep that in the back of my mind was because we had over ninety minutes of music. We had all the music in the film. But we were limited contractually to releasing a 40, 45, whatever minute long album. That's it, Because the deal at the time was a soundtrack release for Nathan Hayes has to, can be no longer than one LP. But that was something new. It's not like that came, because that, but it, there Nathan hadn't Hayes been, out? but there hadn't been a soundtrack album for right. Nathan Hayes. So the old requirement with the deal was still in effect. From what, 19, and From that was I think, yeah. Um, and so, so it was one of those things where, in, in a way, it was almost like a blessing. I mean, look, I, I would have loved to release a great two-disc set of Nathan Hayes, but there's a lot of rep repetition in the score. But, oh, but the one cue, it's a little different, and I love that. And, and yes, I know, and I feel for you, and maybe we can do a, you know... <laughs> 35th anniversary <laughs> release you know in a year or so i don't wow. know how that works but it, it but we i i was forced like into and i'm not saying this as a negative no. i was forced into being the guy that had to put together a 40 something minute long album with 90 minutes of music and so that became the creative task for think, nathan hayes and it's fantastic it's a very listenable album and i you know I, you edited stuff together really well it's a movie i'd never heard of but it's kind of a pirate movie. Well, no one really heard of it no one really heard of it yeah. and it's tommy lee jones it's i don't even remember who's in it now so, okay so uh, it's, i'm pretty it's sure like yeah tommy lee jones and, uh, and, and, and william catter i don't know and trevor jones Maybe for anyone who doesn't know he um uh did the music for the for the dark crystal um and um uh which one? Oh, come on. I'm, I'm, waiting to see, I'm like mouthing it to you to see if you can get it. Last of the Mohicans. Oh, my God. Last of the Mohicans. Cliffhanger. Right. 
and cliffhanger right and i'm thinking of like dark city and like what else um the dark crystal the dark crystal yeah but it's it's right it's the same i think it's the same year as dark crystal and if like if you like the dark crystal you'll like nathan hayes because it's really big sweeping orchestral stuff it's fantastic it's a lot of fun it may be 1983 i think it might be 83 because the rope bridge sequence was famously used in 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, you're kidding. Watch, watch Nate and Hayes, 1983, which um, it has a different <laughs> title as well. I forget. It's uh, something island oh, or, that makes or it Savage Island or I don't know, whatever. But, that, but, I, so. but I, I, I think it's interesting that you were already going to be limited, but you had to create an album that was listenable, even though the, the niche labels seem to immediately go for, let's get everything we can. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not often that happens. I mean, it's, in, it's exceptionally rare that... that that is the case for an older score to be limited yeah. into doing a you know product of the time effectively yeah. and so with Nathan Hayes I mean I'm very it was a lot of work to do to try and get it put together in a way that is a listenable experience but that's where I, again I was trying to structure it similar to how Williams did his Raiders album and oh, just wow. because it's like oh so you have your action theme then you get all this the some 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 sweeping melodies of the love theme and then you get a little bit of the action stuff happening then you get the main hero theme and then go back to it you're kind of having a bit of a flow an ebb and a flow to it which is always a challenge in any yeah. score and i i want to say one sort of unfortunate side effect of the archival releases that that we are doing these days which i i, I love doing there's less creativity allowed in the production of the albums because you can't really combine and switch tracks up like you used to. Right. I think because people are going to be more... I would rather... You know, people would rather have 38 tracks on disc one than 28 tracks if it meant that the order was right. And so... I know, it doesn't bother... Well, the 38 tracks, you mean? No. Well, no, the 28 tracks. I mean, like, I don't mind the creativity. Right. And me, me, me neither. Neither, neither. Yeah. Me, me, <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's interesting because it goes from being like Raiders was, and, and I think it also, it goes to like both a pop album structure and also a symphonic structure right. that, you know, and if you have a, a four movements in your symphony and you're going to start with the big one, the Allegro sequence, and then by the time you get to the third movement, you're into your Andante sort of section. And I think sometimes soundtrack albums, the composers were following that. I think Jerry Goldsmith's Alien follows that. The original album was only like 30 or 30 minutes yeah. and he put a lot of the heavy intense stuff at the beginning and by the time you get to the last third of that album 
it's into the more of the atmospheric stuff. Right. And I think that's more of a symphonic work sort of model. And then if you're doing your archival release, that goes out the window. It's what's the flow of the movie. Right. Which it, sometimes means you're not going to get to the big stuff for 20 minutes. Right. So you're listening to this album, you're like, well, where's the good stuff? <laughs> Whereas I know Brian Tyler, when he's doing a current title, he likes to try and at least put the main big theme stuff right at the front. Wow. Which, which makes sense. Yeah, because, you absolutely. know, for a current title, you want to get it out there. As far as, like, then, like, what's been the, um, I guess, has there been, like, you know, a favorite project for you that you're like, I always wanted to work on this, or I always wanted to see this out? I mean, other than the firm, I guess. Well, the I, the I, well that wasn't one of my holy grails oh, right. to work on. <laughs> the, the irony is one of my holy grails was one of my first projects as a producer, which was Airplane. Oh, right. Which was Elmer Bernstein's score to Airplane, which was the first title I released for, with Paramount. Uh, so I think it's the first archival title anyone released with Paramount, which was part of the whole, like, why hadn't there been any archival stuff with Paramount? And the answer was because they didn't like to do it. And that, that, that was part of the huh. whole thing where I was working with La La Land to try and get in with Paramount. Um, this is back in like 2008. I think I had just done Blazing Saddles okay. with with, uh, with Michael Gerhard and, uh, and La La Land. And through, uh, just through however the, the conversation was, because the scoring session stuff I do, you know, I'm at these sessions and the executives are there. And I was, I think I was giving a bunch of CDs out and I gave some to the head of music at Paramount. And I was like, you know, you guys should be doing this stuff. And he says, well, we should. <laughs> And so we set up a meeting and it went from there. Um, so that's kind of what helped get that whole flood of everyone's doing Paramount releases was, was it started with Airplane, which was the first title to come out from Paramount in terms of an archival release. let's do this you just had to convince people that this is something that there's a market for right and there was i mean airplane did really well i mean there was uh i I don't remember i think it sold out really quickly Mm -hmm. but it was there was a demand for it i mean it's airplane it's elmer bernstein it's like there hadn't you know by the time we released the soundtrack in like what 2009 i think it had been you know 28 years 29 years since the movie came out, or, you know, I think it came out in 1980. 80, so mm-hmm. there, yeah, so I mean, it's it'd been a long time, mm-hmm. and there had never been a soundtrack. So, and then you also followed it up with the sequel. We didn't do indeed do Airplane Two, yeah, the sequel, which is a lot of <laughs> rehashing of the Bernstein material True. and some new stuff as well yeah. from Richard Hazard. Yeah, but um, no, but Airplane was was to me like that was a holy grail in the sense of 
I love that movie so much. I love the score so much. Yeah. I would actually, I think I would record, put a tape recorder near the, the uh, you know, the, the TV speaker to, to record the music off the film as a kid. <laughs> um, it's it's funny because for me, it's all about the main title for that. But I yeah. th- there's so much great stuff in Alan Bernstein's comedy scores. And for me, the one that I recorded off the TV was Spies Like Us. Ah, nice. I wanted the main title from Spies Like Us. Yeah, no, and I would do that all. I used to have mixtapes from, you know, just like, and it came, sounded like it came off a TV speaker because it did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, so, so in the case of Airplane, I mean, once we got the green light to go, it was just like, oh, like, wow, like, let's do this. Um, and that was great because there was a lot of, you know, material that hadn't been heard before. And I mean, most of it hadn't been heard before right. beyond in the film. Right. Um, but there were some alternates and bonus you know things to pull and then so pulling that together was a lot of fun but more 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 fun than that that was back when i was still writing liner notes and so i got to interview you know the zucker brothers and jim abrams and john davison um at royal ban uh, sorry national banana which was uh jerry zucker's company um or david no i think it was jerry zucker's company Maybe David Zucker. I don't know. It was one of the Zuckers. Right. It was their company. Um, and they had been doing, like, online video silly things, whatever. But uh, but we all went over there. I even brought M.V. Gerhard and Matt Verboys from La La Land because we all just wanted to be in the room. Right. And so I just did my, my interview with them. It was like a round table. Huh. And it was it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those projects that, like, you know, wow, I got to work on this. Yeah. You know? I mean, my IMDb is kind of nuts. <laughs> because like seventy percent of the projects I'm listed on were before I was born, you know. I mean, it's just it's like it doesn't quite make sense. But but I mean, but I get to work on you know some really some interesting titles, you know, from older things to more current titles. And everybody uh, in terms of a holy grail, it was it started out with Blazing Saddles and an airplane. And I mean, I don't want to say it's gone downhill from there at all, but it's it's like it's <laughs> really it started it started out at a pretty high peak, you know. So- and that leads me to the question of you as a fan, like yeah. you coming into this. So it wasn't like this, you know, you came into this for already being a fan of an soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been a soundtrack fan. I mean, that was as a kid, I was a soundtrack fan. You know, I mean, I was that I grew up in the 80s where, you know, my parents weren't going to take me to see the movies again i saw the movie great well how i want to see it again no you already saw it so i would get the novelization i would get the soundtrack and then i'd be able to in a way re-experience the film on a more sort of i don't want to say intellectual level because reading and listening to music is probably a little more intellectual than just watching a movie but that could be interpreted as a negative thing and <laughs> movies are intellectual as well but but still it's it's a way of reliving it so i mean you know one of my i had the goldfinger soundtrack you know my parents had an lp mm. and then you know i got the, of course the star wars soundtracks and you know the indiana jones soundtracks then i discovered basil polidorus and then hans zimmer and you know all these guys and then when i was doing soundtrack.net um you know i was just a fan writing cd reviews but then it led to to kind of deviate into more journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I started doing interviews with composers and writing articles and actually breaking news at times as well about who's scoring what and things like that. And so, but I've always kept that fan, you know, mentality. I try not to be the fanboy, mm-hmm. you know. No one, no, none of these composers, they're just, these are, they're guys and women, you know, they're, they're just people. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we hold them up because we're fans. I mean, right. you know, it's like we hold them on a pedestal. And then I guess once you sort of interact with them on a more kind of, you know, leveled basis, 
you realize they're just they're just people you know they, they're doing a job and you know obviously i respect what they do immensely um i don't it, think it, they're as precious about their work as fans as, yeah we we are you know the the first time you know i ever talked to a composer was was when i did a phone interview with michael Kamen, and i was like sweating bullets and i was nervous <laughs> and my voice was shaky and it was like it's michael Kamen. My God, it's Michael Kamen. I mean, how do you, what? I'm talking to Michael Kamen? And then it's like, you know, I, I, I'm I not going to lie. I still like, you know, uh, oh, there's John Williams over there across the room. Like, that's cool. But I'm not like, you know, I kind of, I think I've tempered over the years. Right. It's kind of like, yeah, they're just they're just doing a job, you know, yeah. and everyone does what they will. And, and the, the problem with the fandom versus, look, everyone has opinions, right? Yeah, and so and that's not a problem. Everyone's entitled to an opinion. I mean, I like bro. I I hate broccoli. You might love broccoli, but you know what? Bro- someone right. someone still cooked the broccoli, and we should respect <laughs> all that. It's like there's music that I really like that other people don't like, and vice versa. And then I know the composer, and then it's like they wrote something I didn't like, but I still like the per- the composer as a person. Yeah. And so it's like I'm able to I have to try and separate that, you know, yeah. especially because sometimes I'm working with these guys now. Yeah. You know, whether it's a web design thing or an album I'm producing or whatever, it's like I have to sort of keep that fan aspect sort of deep and buried at times, you know, but it's still there. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I still like think about like, wow, I just I was just at, you know, composer x's studio yesterday and it's like that's so cool but you know yeah yeah it's all it's all good you gotta well, be you know a little little more down to earth about it it's it's kind of you know part and parcel with i you know the one of the reasons i asked and is the adage of well it's twofold i guess it's one seeing how the sausage is made you know so like but that could happen completely just a... demoralizing <laughs> no no seriously it's it's like you know what they say if you ever when once you start to do what you love for work, you don't love it anymore. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, that's um, no. I still okay. I still love it. Okay, um, I was curious. But but the problem, you know, I used to be able to just like listen to film music all the time, and I'd write about it, you know, for soundtrack.net, and I'd be able to really just enjoy the music. Now, every time I listen to the music, I feel like it's work in some form. I still enjoy it, mm-hmm. but. You know, people say, "Oh, did you hear that uh, that thing on the radio?" I'm like, "I don't, I don't know what's on the radio." <laughs> if I'm not listening to music in my, if I'm listening to music in my car, I'm probably just trying to catch up on all the soundtracks that I'm not working on, which is most of them. So no, because I mean, I work on a lot of archival stuff. So right. you know, what 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 does Alexander Desplat's score to The Shape of Water sound like? I have no idea yet. I haven't seen or heard it. I will. You know, but I, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, and so I, I feel like I'm always playing catch up yeah. with like what 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 are the scores I should be listening to today that that the fans are listening to because I'm I'm out of that and you know I'm I'm still a fan but I'm not in the fan world anymore. Well, and Does it that seems make sense? yeah, and if it's become your job, I you know it's sort of like when do you do you what do you are you able to sit back and say like I'm in the mood. For this and just sit back and listen for fun you know occasionally i've actually had to force myself uh recently um to sort of revisit scores and i forget how it came about but i was like you know what i haven't listened to elliot goldenthal's score for final fantasy in a long time and i love that score it was one of my it was like oh, the man. you know soundtrack nets top 10 of 2001 but it was and it, i remember i love that score yeah and it's like i haven't listened to that in so long like i just need to listen to it so i put it on my ipod playlist and then finally 
it came through, you know, like, oh, I got to listen to it again. And it was so refreshing in a way, because to revisit a lot of these great scores, you know, it's like I had forgotten, you know, and oh, well, it hasn't written anything like that in a long time. And so it's, it's, it's nice to revisit these things, but that takes time. Okay, so let's talk about uh, current titles that uh, that you have out um, recently in the last year or so. Right. Yeah. So, um, and well, how, then, I guess, and how that differs from the archival. Right. Uh, well, you, you, you know, put. when when dealing with a current title, it's going to be there are a few different ways of looking at it. Um, on the production side, it's going to be less hands-on generally because the composer is alive, hopefully, because they just did the score. Right, um, and they probably have their own ideas and visions of what the album should be. Um, that isn't always the case. I, I have worked on current titles where I was asked to do the album assembly. So, in the case of the Nice Guys for Lakeshore Records, um, John Ottman was very busy with I think it was X Men Apocalypse, and Dave Buckley was diving into Jason Bourne with John Powell, and so they were both very busy. Even though they had done the score, it was a co-score together. Hmm. Um, they just didn't have time to put an album together. So they, they kind of threw everything at me and said, please make this. And so, uh, so I did. And it was, it was kind of interesting because I, I thought it would be pretty hands-off. Um, and in this case, it's a current title. And so I'm kind of putting together an album I think is a good listening experience. Because I don't know if you're familiar with The Nice Guys. It's a, I did it's a, not it's a, see it. It's a very fun movie. Okay. Um, but if you listen to every cue sequentially, you get kind of, you know... It's not the most exciting thing to listen to. Mm -hmm. So this one, kind of not like Nathan Hayes per se, but it definitely benefited from a bit of curation in terms of putting things in, out of order, mm -hmm. but just to make it more of a listening experience and cutting it down. Um, what I didn't realize though at the time was that John Ottman was very, uh, let's just say, he, he was very much looking for a distraction from his work on X-Men, because I think he was in the editing <laughs> phase. Uh, not in the necessarily in the scoring phase, and uh, so so he would constantly chime in with feedback and and give me a lot more suggestions and advice than I think he had intended. Almost to the point where I was kind of like, I was the puppet and he was the puppet master. Oh my gosh! Uh, which which is fine. I mean, it's his score, so he knows it inside and out. And I hadn't even seen the film um, because it hadn't come out. So and he so, could he could make the suggestion of can you. Make sure that this cue is on. Yeah, because you never know when you're working on a project that for a film you haven't seen, yeah. what's important and what isn't. Yeah. And a bit of a tangent that kind of applies to art direction as well. So when you're doing a current title, you know, we just did Kingsman 
the Golden Circle this year, but two years ago we did the first Kingsman, the Secret Service, and that's you know the score for by Henry Jackman and Matt Margeson. And when I was told I was doing that one, I was producing it and doing art direction. And again, what producing meant in that case was more of a hands-off approach because Matt Margeson really put that album together. He did all okay. the assemblies and everything. But I was like, you could almost say the, the coordinator with La La Land Records and Matt and Fox trying to make sure everyone had what they needed, trying to really you know produce in the sense of a soundtrack that looked good and sounded good and, you know, giving my feedback on things. So even though I wasn't necessarily handling the assembly, that was definitely still, you know, very much involved. With right, the, right. You know, putting it together. Um, but the reason I brought that up was because I also did the art direction on that. And I hadn't seen the film. And I was told, here are a bunch, you know, here are the photos we have. And I'm kind of like, oh, well, this looks good, and that looks good, and oh, I like this one. And I had no idea what the context was of these. And so I was just trying to find images that I thought looked good. And I, I actually, thankfully, Matt did chime in. And he's like, make sure you have a picture of the dog. And I had no idea what the context of the dog was. <laughs> but if you've seen the Kingsman films, you certainly know the importance of the dogs. So that, okay, I get it now. And so after having seen it, I almost was like, ah, oh, I wish I had seen it before. I would have probably picked one or two other images as well. And that happened as well, I believe, with uh, Miss Peregrine, um, the Tim Burton movie right. that, again, um, Mike Hyam and Matt Margerson scored. Oh, okay. And So uh, Matt again. Yes, is Matt, Matt again. And in that case, I, I think I hadn't seen the film, but had to pick artwork, and it's Tim Burton, so you don't want to, you know, you, the visual aspects of those Pretty packages. I'm, I'm trying to make them, you know, they have to tie in with the film. Yeah. And these are these are current projects, so I really want the design aesthetic to fit with whatever the marketing design aesthetic is. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm working with the, in this case, Fox. I'm working with their, you know, marketing teams, not directly, but through an intermediary to make sure I get all the assets that they had when putting it together so I can almost deconstruct their work hmm. and reconstruct it in a way that fits on a CD, whether it's in a booklet or the disc itself or the tray. Because you really kind of have to be in sync much more than like releasing a 20-year-old score. It's basically like as if this was 
you know, if it was summer of, you know, 1989 and you're producing The Abyss or something, it's like there's posters, there's all this stuff that's going along with it that you said the marketing material, you have to be in sync with all of that. Right. And 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 it's not like I do this in a vacuum and I'm just getting the materials from Fox and then there's a lady at Fox who looks at it and says, that looks great. And La La Land says, good, we're done. This goes to like Fox marketing and the, like the head of marketing at the studio looks at this stuff. So uh, most recently, in the case of Ferdinand, is a good example. So this is John Powell's score for the new Blue Sky film that, as we are recording this, came out <laughs> last weekend. Um, but way, it, way to date this. Yeah, I know, right? It came out years ago. Is that what you want? No, uh, no. So it, it just came. Uh, Ferdinand just came out, and you know, we we were working on this project pretty quickly. I think um, I got back from my trip overseas at the end of October and immediately was pushing with Fox to try and figure out the album. Uh, the biggest question on this one was the songs. There's a uh, Golden Globe nominated song called Home huh. by Nick Jonas, which pre- uh, features predominantly in the film. Huh. And because of his deal that he had with the you know his record label that he's, a, he's signed to, they had the right of first refusal to do the score album. Which it could have just been like a songs and score, could have been, you know, who knows what it was going to be. In the end, they decided just to do an EP of six songs. So that left the score kind of up in the air where, hey, where's that going? And so I was working with Fox and John Powell and all these people trying to get it and it landed with La La Land. Um, Because isn't that convenient? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It not necessarily wasn't, it it wasn't necessarily going to at one point, but it, that's where it ended up because of timing. There wasn't anything like as a precedent that, that meant that La La Land would get it. No, there's no precedent. I I told the La La Land guys when I heard that the rights might be available to certainly look at it because they've been wanting to work with John Powell for a long time. And I know John for a long time and I figured, Hey, you know, we should, but John's also starting up his own new record label. And oh. so if you look at the back of the album, it's a Five Cat Studios is the other sort of logo on there okay. beyond the La La Land logo and the Blue Sky and Fox logos. Five Cat. And Five Cat Studios is John's, it's his studio. Does he I have mean, five cats? He did. He, I think he does have five cats. He used <laughs> to be Three Dog Studios and now they're down to two. Oh, wow. One then back up to one. So two. So. One went off on his own to start his own. Well, they went. Oh. But it's, it's very sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's 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 okay. But uh, any case, so he decided on Five Cat Studios being the name. Huh. Um, and so he ended up uh, wanting to release that himself because he's got his Prussian Requiem, which is this oratorio that he wrote that premiered in London last year. Um, huh. And he recorded it and he's got a lot of stuff he wants to release himself. But he doesn't have the infrastructure for a record label just yet, especially one for a current title that we got to get out when the film comes out, in a, you know, a little over a month away. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of agreed to that La La Land would do a, the physical release, Fox Music's doing the digital release. And kind of a co-collaboration, if you will, in terms of on the packaging with mm-hmm. with, with Powell's label. So, a bit of a tangent there. And But that's interesting as far as like a current title, like what you have to deal with. And that's interesting as far as the composer's direct involvement. Yeah. To the level of him wanting it on uh, his own label. That doesn't happen that often with No, uh, the only other... I mean, I could be wrong that there are more than this other example, but... I know Bear McCreary has his own label, Sparks and Shadows. Okay. And he works out his deals where he does co-branded stuff with the the studios to release the soundtrack for the score he wrote on his own label. Or maybe it's a co-produced label, you know, two label type mm-hmm. things. Um, but in the end, it's something where he is very involved with the way his music is presented to the public. 
And so I know that John wants to do that. Uh, certainly, you know, going forward, we shall see where all that all that goes. Well, it matters to him. Yeah, no, and, and it's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in in the case of Ferdinand, there just wasn't any time for him to do it himself because he doesn't have the, he's not set up yet to do it all himself. And right. you know, where do you get stuff manufactured? And you know the printing for the booklets and everything where's La La Land is set up for that especially with such a fast turnaround yeah and that's and fast. Ferdinand this was a very fast turnaround um we started in at the very beginning of November and by November I think 7th we basically had the deal locked I got the artwork it was already album had already been sort of assembled it was going to go to mastering and I think the album master was locked on November 17th and the at that point I had been working on the artwork for about a week and a half and it had gone back and forth. Everyone was very happy with the direction of it. There were some minor tweaks. Um, marketing mm-hmm. had a few ideas of what imagery they preferred to be seen for this film. Right. No bullfighting imagery. Oh. No shots of the bulls all in the group. They're they're very they're being very particular about it. Which huh. okay. Yeah. But, you know there are certain things you have to abide by, and, and that's fine. So made the changes appropriate. Uh, the design of the album came inspired by these sort of internet posters that were created uh, for Ferdinand that are not physical posters, which um, if you look at the cover, it's a flower. It's like a, it looks like a, almost like a Spanish bullfighting poster that you'd see on the side of a wall as you're walking to the stadium. Um, And so it's got these, it's really cool artwork and it's, it's a rose. It's a painted, like a a rose that also has the shape of a bull in the rose petals Hmm. and a little, and a bee. And that's kind of how the movie the movie starts with a little bit with a B as well. So, uh, anyways, the, the point I'm getting at is that that was the image that the director wanted this cover to be. Okay. He didn't want the posters that everyone sees, the billboards, you know, the key art. He wanted, he, he wanted a completely different piece of art that is not really being seen by the public. I mean, they're internet posters. Huh. Like, I only saw them on, like, two websites. But they're great posters, like these these different posters. So that ended up becoming the cover, and then another of these sort of alternate posters became the back tray. Huh. Um, and it, and th- but that sort of led to well, what is this style going to be, and how is that going to influence things? Um, and I wanted to keep some of the fonts from that poster going through, but then you know Powell's team they really wanted to use a specific font, mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, I'll I'll make it work, and it, and I did, and everyone in the end everyone's very happy, and uh, I'm especially happy because I got to use some of my scoring session photography in the booklet, yes, which is not often.
Yeah. You know, it's not often you do a current title where you have photos from the session. Um, I have I have been oddly fortunate to have done some archival titles where I've been around so long now I actually have photos from the <laughs> sessions. So, so that, that yeah, and that, that is one of your other major side you know uh i was gonna say side gigs but it's not really i don't know if it's, it's a gig it's, it's it's more of a labor of love um yeah. so I, I run scoringsessions.com and in that i you know I, I go to recording sessions and i take photos of the musicians working and the composers and the music team and everybody and i try and just showcase it on a website so around the time that the movie comes out people can go check it out so i mentioned ferdinand well the movie came out this past friday so now it's available online and you know i've got downsizing coming out next week mm. or this week mm-hmm. um and then that's it for the year basically because now we're at the holidays yeah when this is being recorded it is just before christmas <laughs> so. so apologize for the lateness of delivery of this episode yes. this, this is probably late january now so <laughs> possibly hope the weather's been good um so. yeah it's, what what's great about scoring sessions.com is is the archive like i said it, it's a way to i think for historical reference to have this in and you know like you said you've been doing it for a long time at the time it's just well this is the movie i need to get done this week or this month but like if you think that's a year two ago three five ten years ago like oh my god i'm so glad we have those pictures that i made that effort you yeah. know and so it's really great to document oh yeah know, and, and I, I have a lot of fun at it i mean if there's anything i can say that i i, I love to do and will always love it's not it's not even the photography i mean i'm i'm not a professional photographer i'm an amateur photographer but i've been learning a lot you know over the years as i've been doing it regardless of that what i love is just being there and and you're in the world of musicians that you know and i don't mean the world like oh well they go to work and i mean like you are standing in the middle of a room surrounded by 80 musicians playing a fully symphonic orchestral score yeah and you're standing there and so i've had over the you know the years i've been doing this i've had a few of those like not epiphanies per se but just those moments where i'm like holy crap and um one of them was when i was at the recording session for john ottman for superman returns mm. and they were recording the main title which is just john williams so yeah i mean arranged a little differently i guess people <laughs> just will john williams. Ar- let people argue about that but <laughs> But, you know, I'm standing in the middle at Tadeo in the middle of like a 95 piece orchestra or whatever, and they're playing Superman. Yeah. It's like, that's just It cool. doesn't happen every day. I mean, you go to the Hollywood Bowl and you hear it played. You're often like the, the benches or it's... it's or you're it's, in the or, terrace box. Or, or you're in the terrace box, but it's Thank still you. in front of you over there. Right. You're not standing in like surra- fully surrounded by them. I mean, you are... And it's different immersed. in a stage... Um, it's different in a stage environment, in a scoring stage environment. Yes. You know, yeah, I mean, the, the acoustics the, are the different. The acoustics are completely different um, than being in an outdoor arena. But it's, again, great that you're documenting this. I mean, it's it's like you're, you know, you're documenting through photos. You're, you're kind of documenting through your albums as well. I mean, you're documenting the history of film through your archival releases and then the current title. So, yeah, I try. I mean, you know, you know it's, anything I can do to help uh, further, you know, people's interest in yeah. it. And that's kind of why I was really excited to help out with the score documentary that came out this year. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I was an associate producer on that documentary. That's a great one. I really was impressed with that one. He, fit, he fits a lot into... It's a lot of material yeah. crammed into like an hour and a half. Um, it, it almost feels like a little bit of whiplash at times because you're just being bombarded with so much information. Yeah. Because um, it's about history of film music, how film music is done, who's doing it today. It's like all these different things. But it's really well put together and it, it 
it's I'm not the target audience, and you probably aren't either. No. But you can still get something out of it. But what's great is I can show this to my parents or my sister or even my nieces and my nephews. Yeah. And say this is what this is where I'm working in this world, and they'll actually maybe finally understand what the heck I do out here. <laughs> To, to some degree, because I'm not a composer, so it wouldn't be helpful. I, I don't know if parents ever often understand what their kids are doing. My mom just still thinks I work in computers. And it's like, yeah. well, it, I, I'm at a computer. I'm not an IT guy. <laughs> but it's all the same to her. I guess. So. Uh, well, all of your work is appreciated. Well, thank and you. I appreciate you being able to uh, be a guest on the show. I'm happy um, to do it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. No, this was awesome. I appreciate all, you know, ever, you know, all your experiences that you shared. Um, so, and I hope everybody had a, uh, a good time listening to, uh, to you share those experiences. I hope so too. And, uh, do not let me know. <laughs> or just keep it to yourself. Exactly. Well, thanks very much, Dan. Right, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. So this wraps up my conversation with soundtrack album producer and film music journalist, Dan Goldwasser. I'd like to again thank Dan for participating and sharing his background, insights, and stories from working in the industry. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. As I, uh, as always, I hope you found it both entertaining and informative. Music heard in today's episode was from the following movies. The Firm, composed by Dave Grusin. Nathan Hayes, composed by Trevor Jones. Airplane, composed by Elmer Bernstein. Final Fantasy, The Spirit Within, composed by Elliot Goldenthal. Kingsman, The Secret Service, composed by Henry Jackman and Matthew Margeson, and Ferdinand, composed by John Powell. If you're interested in checking out some of these scores on album, uh, point your web browser to lalalandrecords.com and find uh, a lot of the great titles there that they have available. Uh, And also check out Dan's uh, website, scoringsessions.com, so you can read up on and see his photography from uh, the scoring stage, uh, the scoring stages here in Los Angeles. If you'd like to send any comments or questions to the show, you can email me at escortasettlepodcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com and on Facebook at Escortasettle. Thanks again for listening.